0: and welcome to another episode of 28 Days Later. I'm your host, Sophie Day, and I'm joined as always by my younger sister and beautiful co-host, Hannah. How's it going, Hannah? What up? It <laughs> <Dad> is going. <laughs> I am sleepy. Things <laughs> are happening. <laughs> Hannah, how have you been since we last recorded?
1: Um, pretty good. I got into grad school. Oh! That was really exciting. (laughs) Um, I'm still waiting to hear back um, from two other schools, but I'm really excited to know that I've at least gotten into one school. Um, So I'm just uh, sort of riding that train.
0: Um, How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, I want to know, do you mind telling people what you're going to grad school for?
1: Um. I want everyone to know I copied you. <laughs> Basically, I'm going to school for social work. Um, I want to do like children and family social work.
0: Yeah, girl. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're gonna be a family full of social workers. Ryan, you're next. Um, no, I love that when when Hannah was applying to grad school, she texted me me to be like sophie do you know there's something called forensic social work and then she was like oh wait that's basically what you do
1: (laughs) i thought that that was like like social work to solve crimes
0: (laughs) yeah i mean that would be fascinating i'm kind of curious to know how that would work but like i get you thinking that i never think of labeling my job as forensic social work although i think technically that's what people would call it um have you done anything exciting since our last episode? Have you had any, like, boozy brunches or, like, fun adventures? Or have you just kind of been chilling?
1: Um, well, I had, I think, from, like, I guess I did sort of have a boozy brunch in an unexpected way. Where it was, like, um, basically, last week, out of nowhere, our landlord, we are leased up in two months. Our landlord was like, you need to get this figured out immediately because we've got two roommates who are leaving so we were like all of a sudden our landlord's like you need to lock down your two roommates immediately or else I'm gonna get like evict you basically you know casual not big deal (laughs) um so we spent like the whole weekend trying to meet new roommates and interview people and that was really stressful at first but then Saturday one of our uh interviews if you want to call it that we were going to meet at this one place to get like breakfast but it was really crowded so I was like let's just go down the street everywhere we went was super crowded so eventually we just went into this like tiny Mexican restaurant kind of uh felt like mildly turned on six dollar mojitos and it was really fun and that person's going to be our new roommate One of our new roommates.
0: (laughs) Perfect. Mm -hmm. Um, As we learned from our Birds of Prey episode, all of the best partnerships are formed over accidental boozy brunches.
1: (laughs) Basically, yeah. But luckily, no one stole my car afterwards.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Um, So I I don't know if you sensed this, Hannah, all the way in Chicago, but um, this past Saturday was a big, big deal day here in kansas city because saturday was the first regular season game for sporting kansas city that's right kids soccer is back hannah is brimming with enthusiasm and just empty of sarcasm um ignore her eyebrows that you can't see they are full of love um yeah (laughs) so (laughs) um
1: I've already said I was really sleepy. Careful with the soccer talk.
0: Uh, so Jeremy and, I, <laughs> Jeremy and I had one of my coworkers over to watch the game. It was a, an away game. We were playing in Vancouver, so it was a really late game because of the time difference. Um, and I won't bore you with too many details, but we had a really tough season last year. So I feel like there was a lot, just like morale-wise, riding on this game. Plus, we had invited my coworker over to try to make her a sporting fan um and the guys played great and it was just great to see them all to get the gang back together again i just was like really filled with an enthusiasm that i've i continue to be shocked by how excited i get over soccer because like i, I am not a person who really cares about sports but like i have really fallen head over heels for a sporting casey so it's good to uh it's good to have them back <laughs> Well, I guess like let's just get right into it. Let's talk about something to keep you awake at night. Uh, this week Hannah and I are covering Lee Wanell and Elizabeth Moss's twenty twenty film, The Invisible Man. And just to give you guys some brief background, <laughs> the film is a sort of like gender perspective swapped retelling of the nineteen thirty-three film The Invisible Man, which follows an inventor who creates something that will make him invisible. The only problem is that the use of this invention sort of like fills him with rage and makes him a bad guy. Um, The difference here is that the movie is from the perspective of the inventor's girlfriend. So um, this woman named Cecilia, is that right? That's her name, I believe. Yeah. Cecilia, played by Elizabeth Moss, um, is trying to and successfully leaves her abusive boyfriend. Um, so the movie sort of opens with this really, really terrifying and extended sequence that I do want to talk about at some point, um, in which she, Cecilia wakes up in her house with her partner. He's asleep. She has drugged him. And then she is sneaking out of the house. It is very clear that she's afraid of him. She has gone to great lengths. She has drugged him. She has hidden stuff all over the house. She's gone to great lengths to get out of the house undetected. And so she gets out. Her sister comes and picks her up. And then she is staying with a friend um, who is a police officer, played by Aldous Hodge. Um, And... Not long afterwards, um, while Cecilia is still dealing with the ramifications of this relationship that we learn was very abusive, she learns that her boyfriend, Adrian, her estranged boyfriend, Adrian, has committed suicide. He left her a large, substantial chunk of money. I think it's about $5 million. Um, And with him gone, sort of once she is no longer living in constant fear that he's going to come find her, she starts to experience some semblance of like relief and freedom and recovery only to start feeling like he is still around and is messing with her. Um, And sort of that, that leads into the plot of the rest of the movie. Uh, I want to go through this. I had never seen and still have not seen the original universal monster uh, movie, The Invisible Man. Hannah, have you?
1: no uh i haven't my only i'm gonna say my main um like understanding of that character is from i think he isn't he in the league of extraordinary gentlemen
0: yes i yes i believe so
1: yeah so i remember i know like the iconic looks and
0: um shots but i've never actually seen that movie Mm -hmm. the original movie i mean um yeah so we are coming to this fresh without that sort of um that we should acknowledge we don't have that experience we didn't watch that movie i do want to say off the bat something that i didn't know about this movie hannah um so this background information i guess i was aware of and i i assume you probably were too there were talks several years ago about universal sort of bringing back all the universal monsters and creating an extended universe, much like Marvel and DC have created extended extended universes. Um, Wait. You didn't know that? No, I did know that.
1: oh oh, okay i was gonna be like how did you miss that that was such big news when they trashed it
0: (laughs) so (laughs) (laughs) so that all started with the 2017 release of the mummy which had tom cruise in it and was a disaster and i want to say right up top that like i did watch that movie i went into it being like this sounds terrible it'll be fun it was not fun it was just really painfully bad um but at the time, they were planning on remaking the a Jekyll and Hyde movie with um, Russell Crowe, who has a cameo in The Mummy, as a uh, as Dr. Jekyll. Then you have um, plans to remake the Invisible Man, um, and it was going to be written by David Goyer, who wrote such gems as Let's see. I mean, I don't want to trash somebody, but he wrote such gems as Batman versus Superman, Ghost Rider 2, and Terminator Dark Fate. Um, so this gentleman had had penned an initial screenplay for a remake of The Invisible Man, which was going to be starring Johnny Depp. Um, which is fascinating. I did read that. Yeah. yeah. Which is fascinating when you consider, like, where this movie ends up. I think that within the Me Too era and sort of, like, news outlets trying to shine more light on uh, intimate partner violence and sexual violence, I think Johnny Depp has not come out of that unscathed. So the idea that he was going to play the Invisible Man feels sort of ironic to me. (laughs) Um, Yeah,
1: I... I read that, too, and I was like, well, that's awkward. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and and then basically the, the Mummy movie did so poorly that Universal was like, okay, we got to pivot, and they went to Lee Wanell and this movie came about, which is kind of amazing. So, Hannah, why don't you give us a quick overview, just what you thought of this movie, and then we'll dig in a little deeper.
1: Um, well, first things first, although I did come to the character of the visible Man, with pretty fresh eyes um, because I hadn't seen the original movie. One thing I did not come to with fresh eyes is Aldous Hodge, who I have had the biggest boner for since I was in high school. And he was Hardison on the TV show Leverage, which like truly was not that good. I mean, it started out really fun. If you're unfamiliar, it's like a group of con men who get together to basically like do pull cons but for justice, like to help people. Amazing. Um Yeah. And um he was like a computer hacker in their group and I was obsessed with him. So I was very happy to see him um in this movie and his muscles and like every single thing that he wore in the movie as well. Um and then um crap. I had something else to say and I honestly got distracted
0: thinking about i mean we can just take a moment to acknowledge that um this is a man like it's no secret a
1: man
0: (laughs) it is no secret that i really appreciate a butt um i think you and i are on record as both being big fans of butts i people that (laughs) my friends are aware that like Um, And I think you and I have had this conversation. You and I both listened to the podcast, How Did This Get Made? And our personal hero, June Diane Raphael, has made it clear that she is not a fan of butts. Like, doesn't understand the appeal of butts. And I just remember that shaking me to my core. I didn't understand that anyone didn't love butts. Um, And, man, Aldous Hodge, he's got a beautiful butt. There is, like, a scene where... Elizabeth Moss is making breakfast, and he walks because she's staying with him and his daughter. He's a cop, and like, is I I assume friends with her sister. That's how she got to stay with him. Um, and so mm-hmm. she's making breakfast, and he walks over to the refrigerator, and he she asks if he wants any breakfast, and he just has his back to the camera. And I found myself just being like, Oh my lord, that butt is obscene, obscene. <laughs>
1: um yeah like that uh, yeah that was like he literally looked so good in this movie that i lost my entire train of thought just mentioning him yeah
0: i think Um, what you were going to tell us was what you thought of the movie as a whole
1: (laughs) yes well no so i did remember what i was going to say is um the guy who directed this movie he also directed um the movie upgrade
0: he sure did among other things we're going to get to lee (laughs) Wanell.
1: Uh, which, I I mean, Upgrade I didn't think was, like, the best movie ever, but I did think it was fun. Uh, the fight scenes were really cool. Yes. And he's a huge, uh, huge fan of James Wan, as are we. Um, and it was funny because in Upgrade, the fight scenes were, like, very clearly um, influenced by James Wan's style. And he even had, like, a couple, like, Easter egg references to him in the movie. Yeah. And then in this too, I thought it was like really crazy to see very James Wan inspired fight scenes, but with where one person in who's involved in the fight is invisible. That was like a whole other level that was actually like such a cool added thing um, into a style that I already appreciate. Um, I really liked the movie. I thought it was really good. I thought it had some really like good genuine scares um but also like that the way that they did the filming with one person being invisible was actually like really well done like the footprints on the carpet and stuff was so fucking creepy like yeah. when he first is standing on the blanket that was horrifying and when she threw the paint Mm-hmm. In the attic, the girl next to me in the theater screamed so loud that I almost peed my pants. <laughs> and
0: Wait, so to be clear, what made you almost pee your pants was not the reveal; it was the girl next to you screaming.
1: It's both because that scare was legit scary. It and was honest to god, earned, well done jump scare. Mm-hmm. Like it was a real, it was a real treat. Like it was a really good, well done scare, which was doubled down when the girl next to me scared the shit out of me on top of it by screaming like <laughs> someone had just stabbed her.
0: For sure. For sure. Um, yeah, before we get too far into the movie, I do want to talk a little bit about Lee Whannell. Um, I am also a big fan of Upgrade. I don't think that the, if you, if you want to pick Upgrade apart, you can. But I think like as an action movie that exists in this realm that to me, the storyline feels like what you would get from an 80s action movie, but you just have these phenomenal action sequences that feel like 80s action sequences turned up to 100 with better special effects because it is, yeah. we're now in the 20-teens, um, or we were at the time, I guess. I thought that Upgrade was really fun, and for me, I was really, really impressed by this movie. Um, so Lee Wanell has only directed four things he directed insidious chapter three upgrade and this movie we don't need to get into the insidious franchise uh i've had to go see every single insidious sequel for the bloody good horror podcast and they've all been trash um i think lee Whannell is more well known as a writer so he wrote uh he was involved in the saw franchise as well as the insidious franchise I do want to really quick just because I feel like I have not had enough air time to air my grievance on this. I was very disappointed. I've always really liked Lee Winnell and thought he has a pretty interesting sensibility. I will say that a lot of writers, this is not just him. A lot of writers when they have to, um, create sequels and dive deeper into a mythology because a film did well, I think that they will offer often, uh, deliver subpar movies and, like, stories that are not as interesting. I do want to call out something that I found really upsetting, which was that uh, Lee Whannell uh, all, wrote all of the Insidious movies, I think, um, and acts in them as well. He plays one of Lin oh. Shea's men, like, assistant guys, Um. And there is a storyline. Oh, line. he's that guy? He's the. He's not the dark-haired guy. He's the other guy.
1: No, yeah. Like, he's the guy who was in Zaw, who wrote Zaw? Yes. Oh, shit. Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't... I know who he is, but I didn't know...
0: That was him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, but I do just want to highlight there is this problematic storyline in uh, Insidious 4 that really soured me on Lee Whannell. And so I really, this was helpful. Um, but he he writes a storyline into Insidious 4 where uh, Lin Shay is forced to go back to her childhood home. And they're investigating a haunting at her childhood home. And her granddaughters are characters. And they're both, like, 18 years old. And there's one that Lee L's character keeps hitting on, and then it becomes, like, a love story. And he's in his late 30s, early 40s, and she's, like, 18. And it's, like, it feels very transparent that a middle-aged man, like, wrote a love story with, like, a hot 19-year-old for himself. And it's just, like, gross, and I'm not a fan. So I just, like, we need to – I need to mention that to get it off my chest. Um, But that being said, um, I also really dug this movie. I think – There's a lot to talk about here, but I think this movie was both really scary and really effective. I think we are in an era right now. I definitely bristle when people are like, horror is smart now, or horror has something to say now, as though it didn't before. But this does definitely feel like it falls into the same category as things like Get Out, where um, there is a very clear message to this movie, but it is also of an effective and scary movie on its on its face
1: yeah that's a really good point um just the fact that like um it's hard to make a horror movie where the allegory is like pretty cut and dry um without it feeling gimmicky or preachy and like still being legitimately scary Mm -hmm. um and I think that this movie really delivered on some, like, genuine scares and some really, like, legitimate commentary on, uh, on abusive relationships. Yeah,
0: definitely. I want to talk about, I alluded to this in, in my intro. And also, like, the privilege of,
1: like, the privilege of the main character as well as, like, a
0: very successful white man. Yeah. Um, I will, we want, we'll get back to that. Cause I do want to talk about that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, I alluded to this in my intro, but the opening sequence I found incredibly powerful. So like I said, we have Elizabeth Moss waking up in the middle of the night or, I mean, she may have already been awake. She opens her eyes. It's the middle of the night and she's kind of creeping around. We see that she's drugged, uh, Adrian, her boyfriend, uh, who I should say is played by Luke from The Haunting of Hill House. I don't have the actor's name right offhand, but he was—if he, he looked familiar, that's why. Um, and she is seen it. <laughs> she's kind of like creeping around the the house. Um, she is getting. It's clear that she like has a duffel bag with all her important documents and a change of clothes. And she has like planned all these things she needs to do. She has prearranged with someone to meet her on a weird, not a weird, but on a back isolated back road in the middle of the night. I mean, I wanted to talk about that just because uh, you and I have, have both never been in a a relationship that is abusive uh, physically or emotionally to that degree. But I think that sequence is really reflective of a lot of people's experiences and i think it's important to illustrate that like yes this is a horror movie but in the beginning nothing otherworldly is happening she's just trying to escape an abusive partner and i think it's really i found it really striking and i was very grateful that they sort of made a point of showing this extended sequence of all of the steps that she had clearly had to go through and plan and hide to be able to leave safely. Um, And I wanted to know what you thought about that.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. Um, Because I think to start off, to start off a movie that we know is going to go to a place where you're going to be suspending your disbelief to some degree. Um, Starting out where the, horror is one that is a very real thing for a lot of people um and like and can happen in so many different situations where it can be very well hidden um like i think to see her it was almost like you were seeing the final girl at the end of a movie when she kind of like pulls up her bootstraps and kicks it into high gear to defeat whatever is the horror villain of that, you know, story. But we're seeing that usual, like, kind of where we get in most movies at the end of a woman's journey. That's like what we're starting off with Mm -hmm. is her doing all these things to, like, save herself. Um, But it's like from her part, like her romantic partner. Um, which is a pretty scary and devastating place to start for a character, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean. Um, Yeah, it's interesting because I think we get that sequence, right? And the first time that we see adrian he's asleep i mean she has drugged him she gave him diazepam and uh, crushed it into his water i think that this film does a great job of even though he is asleep in that moment we are terrified of him the way that that sequence is shot and the way that elizabeth moss um acts in that all of those sequences makes him really scary so and i think it's very fitting that then you know, she gets to the car and gets in the car with her sister. Her sister clearly they're, they're This is a really good piece of dialogue work. I thought where her sister was clearly not aware of the extent of abuse that she's gone through, presumably because Adrian has isolated her from her sister. She like if you called me in the middle of the night and said, I need you to come pick me up and then you came running out of the woods and got in my car all frantic. Um, I would be worried. And her sister is worried, but I think is also like, what's going on? And just sort of is like a deer in the headlights and is sort of stuck trying to sort out what's going on. And as that's happening, Adrian runs out of the woods and punches the window of the car in and starts choking Cecilia. So it's this really effective sequence where this tension builds and builds and builds. Like you said, it's sort of like the entirety of a slasher film or the entirety of a Final Girl sequence encapsulated in this short sequence put at the beginning of a movie where we see her sort of grappling with her own mortality and and seeing that she's in danger and trying to escape and being really smart and capable and still the villain catches up with her and we at that point we see the extent. We're seeing it in reverse, right? Like usually the audience is seeing throughout the movie what this villain is capable of and we don't see until a few minutes into the movie when that that scene happens and it's a great setup because then we have elizabeth moss's character sort of uh i think very um vulnerably and realistically show so showing the trauma and sort of the like emotional scars that someone like that might have when she's staying at um aldous hodge's house and she is like, afraid to leave the building because she's so scared that he's going to find her.
1: Yeah. Um, I think that, I had to say that Elizabeth Mo- Elizabeth Moss's performance in the movie was really, really good, really, really raw. Like, one of my, um, I think one of my most, one of the most effective scenes to me in the whole movie was when she starts figuring out that something is going on mm-hmm. and she is so sure, but no one is believing her. And she goes into her room at the house where she's staying and she keeps looking. I think she's either looking in the corner or the doorway, mm-hmm. but it's like, she knows, she knows that he's like in the room. And she and has she sprinkled
0: him. coffee grounds on the ground to like prove to herself that he's there.
1: Was this, wait, no, this is before that. Oh, okay. The the one, the moment that I really, um, that really like crushed me is when she's trying to say like something's going on, something's going on and no one's really believing her. And she's just like looking over her shoulder, looking over her shoulder, like so sure, but also so panicked and also like not sure. And she just like crumples into a ball on the floor crying um like i i like i just thought that that whole scene was so so heart wrenching um because it is scary within the context of the movie but it's also scary within the context of like the larger issue of what a woman or a man um in a situation like that goes through even after they're like out of the situation Um, but yeah, that, then it's like after that is when she does like the coffee grounds and the God, I cannot just, I can't even say like how, how much the, the scene where she threw the paint out of the attic and he was right fucking there was so fucking
0: good. It was great. It was great. But that sequence with the coffee gear, I totally agree with you with the first sequence you brought up because ultimately what this movie is about is gaslighting and about people not believing victims of abuse that, that their Mm -hmm. experiences are real and also not really having patience or allowing them space after the abuse has ended for the, like the sort of like ripples of that to continue happening. If you leave an abusive relationship or you survive a trauma, it doesn't just go away. You're not all better now. And so I think this movie does a great job of sort of showing both of those things. I think the folks that she's living with are very supportive and understanding before stuff starts happening, just that like she's going to take some time and they're going to be, they're going to meet her where she is and go with her. But I agree that then, then what happens is we sort of move into the space where she's being gaslit. All this stuff is happening that she knows, She's not doing or she knows is not in her imagination, but no one else believes her and she can't prove it. And that's to me why the coffee ground scene is so heartbreaking and terrifying because so at this point, all this Hodges daughter, teenage daughter, has come in to talk to her and invisible Adrian hits her really hard. And she thinks that Cecilia hits her. So she panics. Her dad comes in. Cecilia is saying, I didn't do it. I think understandably he doesn't believe her because he can't see anyone else and his daughter is saying that she hit her so they leave and elizabeth moss cecilia's cecilia's alone in the house and so she's trying to provoke adrian and then she goes into her room and she sprinkles coffee grounds all over the floor so that there's no way for him to get near her without her seeing him coming And she just sits on the floor and delivers this monologue about why me? And she's staring at the open doorway asking, like, why can't you just leave me alone? Why does it have to be me? You could have anyone you want. Why do you care so much? Why are you doing this to me? And even though as the audience, we have seen things happen. So we know something is going on. I think there's still a moment where it's scary that you don't see footprints because y- you don't want it to all be in her head and you don't think it's all in her head. But now that she's trying to prove that it's real, she can't. Do you know what I mean? Which I thought was really yeah, cool. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like the, we'd already know from what we've seen that there is something going on. Um. But yeah, like, in that moment, she—you think she's being really clever, and she's really like got one over on him. But that's not what does it, um, and that what like was really sad to see her like think she got kind of like um like some like gain herself some ground basically, um, or some coffee grounds rather, um, and then. <laughs> Like realizing it didn't work. Yeah. Now. <laughs> uh, not funny. Sorry. No, very funny. funny. <laughs> um,
0: You mentioned Elizabeth Banks' performance, and I want to dive into that a little bit because I agree that she's phenomenal in this. Not,
1: Elizabeth not.
0: I said Elizabeth Banks. We'll come back to her later. There's like a tie-in. I'll just say it now. I did read reports that Elizabeth Banks is currently working on a script for a movie called The Invisible Woman for Universal. Hmm. So just interested to see if that's going to be a sequel to this. That's why I said Elizabeth Banks. Anyway, um, Elizabeth Moss's performance in this movie is amazing. I watched an interview with her where she talked about the fact that it was really interesting for her to work with Lee Wannell. Because I think if you're someone who's familiar with Elizabeth Moss's work, one of the things that she is most well known for is doing The Handmaid's Tale. Obviously, she's also been, she was in Us. She was in Top of the Lake. She was in Mad Men. She's been in a lot of things. But I think especially in Mm -hmm. Handmaid's Tale, this is a story that's really emotionally gripping. And she is required at times to give a performance that is really gut-wrenching. So I think for me, it was not particularly surprising to see Elizabeth Moss give this performance that is really big emotionally. But she sort of talked about the fact that on set, she would perform a scene. And then Lee Wannell would be like, I want it. You need to do that, but bigger. And she'd be like, I can't do it bigger. It's not going to make sense. And then she'd be like, okay, let me watch the, she'd, <laughs> she would do it bigger and say, okay, let me watch it. And then say, okay, yeah, you're right. That's that, that works. So I sort of love, I am not a person who's ever done any acting. I don't know a ton about the craft, but I respect the ability to just go even bigger than you think is believable because I think that makes the performance so much more uh, grounded and, and wonderful and mesmerizing.
1: Well, especially since in a lot of the scenes, the person she's acting against isn't physically there. Yeah. Um, that takes a lot to make that really convincing and really scary. And so much of the time she's staring into a corner of a room that other people are in, or sometimes that other people aren't in, but she's staring at a corner. And um, the camera work in this movie did some really cool stuff where the way that it would pan around the room at times, um, where you wouldn't actually, like you you were waiting and looking all around to see what was going to happen, but not sometimes like something nothing would even happen. Right. Um, And I think like something that that, That that does, A, well, it it just makes, like, empty spaces scary from the get-go because we don't know Mm -hmm. when the invisible person is there or not. Mm -hmm. But afterwards, when I thought about it, you know, as the movie goes on, there's, like, a twist of sorts where um, you find out that his brother, who's also his lawyer, is involved in um, helping his brother fake his death. And then on top of that, we find out later on, um, at least for part of the movie, that it's his brother who's in the suit. So I don't know if you thought about this, Sophie, or caught this, but like in the very beginning when she was escaping Adrian's house, she um, there was a, there was a part where she's getting dressed and the camera pans over to where the doorway to the basement is. And it's also like within sight of her changing her Mm -hmm. clothes. Mm -hmm. But you don't, we don't really see her changing her clothes. And then when it pans back over, she's done changing her clothes. And then, you know, everything keeps going and nothing seemingly happens in that empty space in between. But when you find out later that there's some confusion as to whether or not everything that was going on with the invisible person was her boyfriend or his brother and I when I started thinking about it more afterwards I wondered if that little choice at the beginning Hmm. was an allusion to the fact that like it his brother could have been like in the house or in the suit even then
0: Oh interesting. I read it very differently, but I I'm I don't necessarily disagree with you as you're saying that. I definitely once they reveal that her his brother was in the suit at some point. I definitely read it that the brother was not in the suit until the end. Like in the sequence where he gets killed. I I don't I did not mm. think that he was in the suit until that point because at that point her her boyfriend Adrian is injured and like needs to have plausible deniability, right? So like to me, it seemed like it wasn't until then. But it I mean it totally could have been earlier. I have no idea because I yeah, I mean now I'm now I'm like rethinking everything I was thinking about it. Um but yeah, I agree the camera yeah, work like, is I interesting. Think, I think if
1: you went back and watch Yeah, like I think if you went back and watched some of the times where the camera pans away from, like, some kind of action that's going on, it could suggest that either, the like, that the brother was involved more often. Because there are two suits. Right. So there also could have been two people. At a um, time. Invisible in some scenes.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's super interesting. I also really like um, one of the things that, This movie does really well, I think, and you sort of alluded to this with the way the camera works. Is there are sequences where the camera moves or is panning around or just holds on something for a long time and nothing happens, and I and this movie uses silence Mm -hmm. a lot. Um, I think both of those things make you um, sort of sit on the edge of your seat, like as movie fans, but horror fans especially we are conditioned when we hear silence to listen for something scary. We are conditioned when the camera stays still to look for something scary. And I think that the effect that has is it creates a sort of um, temporary hypervigilance in the audience. And we know that people who are survivors of trauma and suffer from PTSD develop hypervigilance where... They, they feel like they need to be paying attention at 100 percent capacity at all times because they could be in danger at any time. And I think the movie through the use of sound and silence and the use of those really interesting panning shots sort of makes the audience without even realizing it get into Cecilia's headspace where we are constantly looking and listening for danger. And one of the things I thought was interesting is that because of that, There is a sequence later on where she chases Adrian in the suit into the rain. And I saw this movie with Jeremy and Jeremy said to me, for me, the most stressful part was the scene in the rain because you'd think in the rain it would be easier to see him but it's not really. And also the rain makes it that you can't hear him. And so like the whole movie is lining you up to be really, really hyper vigilant. And then when they're outside in the rain, none of that is working. And it makes it feel really stressful because you can no longer, you no longer feel in control of your surroundings as a viewer, which is really interesting. Yeah,
1: that's a good point too, to think about how Well, because one thing I think about now when I see, like, any horror movie um, is, especially after after movies like Hereditary, where I just always am looking in the background, like, trying to see if something's going to – if something is being foreshadowed or shown and I'm just, like, not seeing it. And so I think, like, that some of that camera work played off of that because nothing would actually happen – But it did, like you said, like make you be hyper aware of what's going on. Um, Like you're listening for anything off. You're looking for anything to shift slightly. Um, And yeah, once it's in the rain, it's just like every, it's like sensory overload. Um, So you really are kind of at square one Mm -hmm. with that. Um, It's also just kind of like how for her, you feel like, oh, this guy, she's, the guy that she's moved in with is a cop and he has a daughter it's like they don't know where he lives she's in a very safe space where it's like she's safe if she's around other people
0: mm-hmm.
1: and at first it's like he doesn't do anything when other people are around either so you feel like she's safe if as long as there's other people are around and then like when he hits the daughter that's the first time he does something when someone else is around right and it's like and he still, you know very easily gets away with it so i think that that also amps that tension up a lot too because it's like much like a person in that situation it's like you might think you're safer if there are people around or if there are witnesses or something um but even still like that's not the case um and i think like how much how much the the violence that he would commit um, towards her and other people, like the number of people that were around for that, like kept uh, multiplying, like with each, with each thing that he would do. Right. Um, which also made it like scarier and scarier. Cause there's like more and more uh, people around each time, but she's still like not even any safer.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think we, you, you alluded to this earlier, but There obviously are some very, very significant parallels with the plot of this movie and things that are happening in the news right now. I know that in one interview, Elizabeth Moss specifically said that she was really proud of this movie because it is such an important film about believing survivors and believing women. And she was really excited that the movie was coming out, that the timing worked out in such a way that this movie was released right after Harvey Weinstein was convicted. And one thing I thought was mm-hmm. really interesting sort of thinking about it in that context is that th- this movie did a really smart thing where, um, and I think part of this was strategic because they needed a way that her boyfriend could have invented this kind of suit. They keep what he is a tech billionaire in vague, but it's what they keep calling it is optics, right? Like seeing things. And, and the ability to see things. And I think that's interesting in and of itself. But you also have the fact that when you have publicists for celebrities or politicians or brands, they will talk about the optics of a situation. It is clear that Adrian was a person who had his optics like very heavily controlled and he could, he could keep the way that people saw his relationship with Cecilia the exactly the way he wanted. He had complete control over the way that other people perceived their relationship. And I thought that was especially impressive and interesting given that the scenes that we do see of the house they live in together, the home is almost entirely glass on the exterior, which is this yeah. beautiful image, right? That like everyone can see into their life if they were looking. But th- but they're not. Right. So like it- and I yeah. feel like his his power and his um his power and his authority, like as a white man and as a man and as a tech billionaire, like that is what really makes him invisible even before he has the suit. Right. Like he he operates in a world where he doesn't feel the least bit afraid of having security cameras all over his house that have no doubt caught all kinds of heinous abuse because his power makes him invisible. He doesn't feel afraid to abuse his girlfriend in a house where all the walls are glass because no one's looking and even if they were, they're not going to do anything because he's powerful. And I think that of everything that this movie did um, was the part that really sticks with me the most is just the way that people, Especially people who are powerful and have privilege feel like they are untouchable and feel like they have the ability to keep their abusive and ugly sides invisible because they are so in control of the optics of like who they are, quote unquote, like who they are as far as people are going to see them, that they, f- they feel entitled to act in these like horrific ways as well because they control their image.
1: Yeah, I mean it's sort of like with um when everything started coming out about Jeffrey Epstein and there was a lot of people who worked like on like some of the islands that he frequented mm-hmm. who would talk about how they would see him bringing in like a lot of clearly like underage girls frequently and they would all say like like there was I remember reading a while ago something about how they would say the school bus was coming in when his plane would land. Right. And it was, like, they would talk to each other about it and say, like, we're all seeing this. Right. But then, like, their supervisors would basically be, like, yeah, but there's nothing you can do. Don't say anything or you're going to lose your job. Right. Like, Like, because the the power that he had was so much that it was, like, just talking about it to the other people you work with could put your job in jeopardy. And it's sort of, like, with... um, with the the, uh, the people she's living with, it's like, you know, like his immediate priority has to be his daughter, which is entirely understandable. Right. Um, and his reaction is understandable. Um, but that's also like part of it is it's like everybody else has their priorities or like, you know, what they're seeing. Um, and that's such a hard thing about it too, because it's like people in a lot of situations, if they have, you know, if they're very dependent on their, um, if, you know, if they really, really need like their, their job or something like they'll, they won't always report something that they see because they're too scared of losing their job. Right. Whereas it's like the, you know, that they're seeing commit these things is extremely wealthy and like, doesn't, isn't worried about that. so I, I mean, I don't know if I, I don't know if this is making sense, but just that it's like the the idea of such a hard aspect of um like abuses of power and abusive relationships being that everybody else has so much going on for themselves too, that like you said, it's like even when they have everything in front of them where they can see like the windows of the house, it's like they're not really looking, like you said.
0: Right. Right. And that sort of leads me to this is uh, tangentially related to the film, but I do feel like it's important that we at least acknowledge it. Um, So something that you and I uh, have talked about frequently uh, outside of the podcast and not in relation to this film, but in relation to Elizabeth Moss, is that she is a Scientologist. Um, So I think we should just really quickly. No, I think we should acknowledge like so I think that. There is not necessarily anything wrong with like, while I don't agree with it, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with like the belief system of Scientology. However, I think that if you know anything about the church of Scientology, you are aware that as an organization, it is um, a pretty um, abusive, it can be a pretty abusive organization that really doesn't have any problem throwing its weight around to control people within the church, whether that's people who want to leave the church or don't agree with the church. Um, Elizabeth Moss was raised in this, the Church of Scientology and has been relatively closed-lipped about it. And when she's interviewed, she she either um, defers the questions or has sort of um, glossy answers to it. But I do think in this context of this film, it is just worth mentioning um, that that is – something that is relevant to the conversation. I know that in the context of The Handmaid's Tale, which is a series about a totalitarian regime, people have sort of asked her if it feels hypocritical for her to play a lead character in that show when she is part of a church that um, has pretty egregious views on things like homosexuality and freedom of the press um, and sort of ex- exploring other ideas and sources of information. So I just think it's important that when we are discussing a movie about someone, uh, a body exerting control over someone else who has less power, it's important that we sort of at least check that. And I do want to say that um, I had a, I was on the phone with my boyfriend before we recorded, and I was talking to him about it, and I said, you know, I don't want to be salacious. I'm not trying to knock Elizabeth Moss. I think she's a great actress, but I do think in the context of this movie, it's important to acknowledge it. And he was sort of like, well, yeah, because I think the thing about Scientology is if you are a person for whom Scientology is beneficial and it's working for you, then yes, there's no problem with it. But as soon as Scientology is not working for you and you want to leave or you want to speak out against it, it will follow you like an invisible force. And so it's very relevant to bring up in this in the context of this movie. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because when I was seeing it with my boyfriend, he was like, (laughs) as soon as she uh, when she put the suit on at the end and killed her boyfriend, Mm -hmm. her ex-boyfriend. My boyfriend went, never turn your back on a Scientologist.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Especially when they're invisible. Um, So Hannah, how many Bloody Marys out of five on our scientifically tested and absolutely valid measure would you give The Invisible (laughs) Man?
1: Um, I'm going to give it point. Seven five Bloody Marys. Because wow. I really liked it, but I'm still not giving up my five yet.
0: Wow, we're really I love that you're really getting into the decimals here. Uh I feel like I got really in my head after we talked about um well, we talked about a movie last week and the episode hasn't come out yet, so you guys will have to wait. But Hannah talked Ghost. about <laughs> Hannah talked about feeling really like wanting to guard not giving out too many five Bloody Mary reviews. And I think I got really in my head. The problem is we've reviewed a lot of really good movies. So first of all, we need to talk about more bad movies. Um, Second of all, I think I'm going to give this movie four and a half Bloody Marys. Although at this point, I can't decide if that's because I really feel it or because I don't want to give out any more fives. So I feel like... um, don't read into what that means about the validity of our measure. Uh, it's totally scientific and has been proven by a board of dentists, and it's fine. I just feel like I'm not sure anymore. And if you question it,
1: it will follow you like an invisible force.
0: Yeah, nothing, nothing <laughs> is real anymore. Um, <laughs> so speaking of invisible forces trying to control us, our in later news, Hannah got really excited. It's not about aliens. It's much more sad. Um, mm. So Hannah and I are recording on Tuesday night. You all are listening on Friday, Wednesday of this week. The U.S. Supreme Court is hearing the case of June Medical Services versus Russo out of Louisiana. Um, This law was proposed. It's a TRAP law. So if you're not familiar, TRAP stands for Targeted Regulation of Abortion Providers. And these are laws like The hallway has to be at least X amount of feet wide or you have to have admitting privileges at a local hospital. And these these laws are set up uh, explicitly to try to undermine Roe v. Wade and curtail women's access to abortion. So this law was passed in Louisiana and the U.S. Supreme Court will be hearing it um, this week. So um, there have been more than 450 trap laws that have passed in the United States over the last decade, several of which I shouldn't say several, but some of which have gone to the U.S. Supreme Court. So people may remember in 2016 there was the case of Whole Women's Health, which was um, a, another very similar trap law and the U.S. Supreme Court overturned it. The problem, of course, is that in the interim, the um, setup of the course and of the court and the balance of the court has changed. So this is the first uh, big abortion rights law that's going to go in front of this court, which is making people concerned for valid reasons. Um, so as of right now, Louisiana, Louisiana only has three abortion clinics. Um, and the law that is going up to the Supreme court right now in this particular case would force women who used one of those three facilities that are still allowed to legally operate to, um, They would be legally required to sit through counseling intended to discourage them from having an abortion as well as an ultrasound uh, that must be shown and described in detail to the the person seeking an abortion um so i think like we can all probably agree that that's not great um but i think because of the makeup of the court right now People are watching this pretty closely because, of course, we now have uh, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh who are both Trump appointees and are very conservative. Um, so please keep an eye on that case just because I think uh, it's going it could potentially have pretty, pretty broad implications And whichever way it's decided. It will give us a good idea of what the current Supreme Court uh, opinion is at the moment as far as abortion rights go. So that's very important. Mm. So, blomp, blomp, sorry blomp. to be a bummer. The reality is, unfortunately, a lot of times in later news is kind of tough. It turns out the patriarchy is a real fucking bummer, man. <laughs> That's going to be our new T-shirt. The patriarchy is a real fucking bummer, man.
1: <laughs> it tur- no, it's got to be, it turns out. <laughs> it
0: turns out the patriarchy is a real fucking bummer. Um. So... On that lovely, uplifting note, um, if this is upsetting to you, you can do things like support your local Planned Parenthood and or pay attention to what abortion legislation looks like in your state and lobby about it and call your lawmakers. I mean, this is a really, really important issue. Um, We know statistically that a quarter of women will seek an abortion at some point in their life and they should have the right to do that in a in a manner that is safe. One of the really horrifying stats I read in that article um, is that, let's see, an abortion is in particular is one of the safest medical procedures there is. Patients are more likely to land in the hospital after having their wisdom teeth removed than they are after an abortion, and they're 14 times more likely to die during childbirth than in an abortion. So, oh. yeah, so...
1: Just like. You hear that, mom? That's why I'm never having a baby. I thought you were
0: going to say that's why I'm never having my wisdom teeth out. And I was like, you already did. And you survived. Um, I was not hospitalized after having my wisdom teeth out, but I did get an infection or like a weird cyst in my gum a couple years later that had to be cleaned out. And then that got infected, and I did go to the emergency room for that.
1: So. Yes. And I was across the country and I had to drive all the way home to get home for your surgery. For my wisdom teeth surgery? Or the gum no, surgery? The your, your gum thingy.
0: I don't know if you remember this, but I was recently telling a friend that um we were talking about like really fortifying experiences that you have with a romantic partner when it's like too early for you to have that experience. And I said, Yeah. So Jeremy and I started dating Uh, after he, we had known each other for quite some time. I had, did not just meet him, but he had come out to the East coast to go with us, to, with me, to our cousin's wedding. And then I had to have this surgery and I was really nervous about it because I had just graduated college when they told me I needed the surgery. They said there was a small chance that the cyst was cancer and they wanted to test it. And that's a scary thing to hear. And I had never really had any surgery other than having my wisdom teeth out. And so um, Jeremy flew out to the East Coast, I think the day after I had my surgery, to be with me. And within a day of him arriving, I got an infection in the site of the surgery and I stopped responding to my antibiotics and my painkillers. So I think Jeremy had been in Delaware for like eight hours and we went to sleep. And I woke him (laughs) up in the middle of the night crying and doubled over in pain and was like you need to go wake up my dad and so jeremy had to go downstairs to our parents bedroom wake our dad up and then dad and jeremy took me to the emergency room and the three of us just spent the rest of the night in the emergency room um and that's when i knew he was the one
1: (laughs) i should ask my boyfriend if he felt that way when Um, I called him to my apartment when I had the worst UTI I've ever had, where I, as he puts it, when I answered the door, it looked like I had been dead for 12 years. Oh, God. And then I proceeded to lie on the floor of my shower naked crying until I literally passed out from how painful it was.
0: Oh, geez. Yeah. (laughs) So the things we go through as humans, and especially as women, it, it's hard. If you want to talk to us <laughs> about how hard it is, or you just want like support, please know that we're here for you. You can you hit us up
1: about your fist.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, if you just want to like join us for a little brunch chat about like all the weird shit your body does as a woman, you can tweet, uh, tweet us. We are on Twitter at the number 28 days, lady underscore ER. You can also send us an email with all of your, um, feminine grievances or a question or any other feedback at 28 uh, daysladier at gmail.com that's gonna do it for us this week Hannah um, I guess like just try to prevent UTIs drink lots of water uh, always pee after sex you know that's you know what
1: that is what we should always say always pee after sex and then clean. <laughs>
0: I nailed it! <laughs> yeah, That was spot on!